Okay, so through a, the fact that I'm really not great at texting because I have fat thumbs, I didn't include like the entirety of the scripture reading for this morning. It wasn't just Acts 11. It should have been Acts 1 through 11. So I'm going to go ahead and read the part that I forgot to tell Sally to put in the, in the thing. But luckily, like the, the part that was read, actually, that's the, mo- that's the most important part. So we, we got that at least. But I'll go ahead and read Acts 1, 1 through 11 as well. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then when they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men addressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in this time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen. So the period after Thanksgiving and before Christmas is the time when the retail world uh, puts up their marketing and sales machines into overdrive in an end of year frenzy to try to get consumers to think that they can buy their way into happiness. When was the earliest that you saw Christmas stuff go up in the mall? or Target or Walmart or wherever you go shopping. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a thing. Actually, nowadays it's even before Thanksgiving. Um, but in the Christian world, the period is, this period is better known as Advent. And this morning is in fact the first Sunday Advent, Advent, which is why we had the whole wreath lighting thing going on here. And the word Advent is derived from the Latin words advenio, which means to come to. And so in the life of the church, The Advent season is that time when the faithful should particularly reflect on Christ's past, present, and future coming as it relates to the lives of those who love the Lord. We prepare to celebrate the anniversary of Christ's coming into the world as the incarnate Son of God when meekly born from the Virgin Mary some 2,000 some odd years ago, uh, we work hard to show the fruits of our salvation and obedience to Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit 
who is a state of coming into our souls now. And we look forward to the return of the Lord when at some point, you know, sometime in the future, uh, he comes back to our world in the fullness of his glory, honor, power, and might to judge all mankind from all time, both the living as well as the dead. And indeed, he is coming. But how are we to prepare for his coming? Well, the first time Christ came into the world, uh, it was written, when the shepherds watched over their flocks at night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And why were they terrified? Um, it's probably because these shepherds were in their own way, uh, God-fearing men who understood that historically, when angels showed up, uh, it was often as God's instruments of wrath to execute judgment on the unrighteous. But luckily for them, not this time. This time, instead, the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So, <coughs> excuse me, in other words, <coughs> the shepherds' response to the first coming was to do what? Was to spread the word, the good news, the gospel, brought to them not only by the proclamation of the angels, but also by beholding with their own eyes the Lord incarnate as a newborn baby who was promised to be the Messiah, you know, the Savior. But the second time Christ comes into the world, though it will be quite different, we must still be ready. And this morning, we're going to consider how to be ready according to this passage we read from the book of Acts. Now, this, this first chapter of Acts starts off fleshing out the details of Christ's ascension at the end of the gospel according to Luke, uh, and, and at the end of Luke. And, and Acts, in fact, uh, as some of you may know, was written by the same guy who wrote Luke, Luke. And the resurrected Christ appears to his disciples and spends some time with them in Jerusalem and in Bethany, teaching them, encouraging them, uh, blessing them, and preparing them for their ministry before, as we read, you know, he ascends into heaven and is lost to sight. Now, <clears throat> one of the coolest things I've ever seen or experienced in person was, was watching a rocket being launched into space. It was like a Delta something, and it was some Air Force, it was at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, and where, you know, where they also launch rockets, you know, besides that place in Florida. And it's one of those, it's, you know, a rocket launch is one of those spectacles, I mean, it's one of those things like, uh, unless you experience it, like, you just don't really know how awesome it is. I mean, it's like, there are certain experiences like that, right? Like, you go to the Grand Canyon, oh, it's just a hole in the ground. No, it's, it's actually pretty amazing. Or, you know, uh, 
the first time you throw a hand grenade and the thing blows up like it. Anyway, that, that's not a good analogy. Anyway, the point is, is there are certain things you just have to experience to really understand like how awesome the power really is involved. And, and this rocket launch is one of those things, right? Like the noise is just unbelievable. It's like this roar that no microphone can really quite pick up and transmit to the listener without blowing out the speakers. And then you see this bright star-like light just, I mean, it's on this, this expanding pillar of, of, I guess, vapor as it's disappearing into the vault of the sky. I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really incredible. Now, I don't know what it looked like when Jesus ascended into heaven, but I'm guessing it too was probably just one of those experiences. You, you just had to be there. You had to be there. But I'm guessing it must have been at least, at least as cool as a rocket launch, right? Uh, so, this, so the disciples, understandably, I mean, they're spellbound. I mean, they're just sort of gaping at the sky, like, oh my gosh, look at that. I mean, I mean this is one of the few times where it'd be appropriate to say, oh my God, Jesus Christ, because it was God, Jesus Christ, descending into heaven. And, and I don't know how long the disciples stood there continuing to gape, but before they can waste too much time, you know, just being mesmerized, literally just staring off into space, uh, their attention is brought back earthwards by this sort of weird interruption by a pair of divine messengers in dazzling white. Now these two angels who, you know, by their style and manner, I mean, they might have been the same guys who, the same angels who earlier, uh, if you remember from the, some of the accounts of the resurrection, you know, they gently chided the women. They're wondering what to do after they found, found the, the tomb to be empty. You know, they say, you know, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And we read that all the time during Easter. And, uh, you, you know, they, they chide the disciples here now, like, what are you doing here just staring at the sky? Why are you just staring at the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. And what is interesting about this is that, is that first of all, obviously, there, there's actually nothing wrong looking up at the spot where Jesus vanished into glory, right? I mean, who wouldn't do that? I mean, it's, so it's, it's, you know, it's understandable and even you know, it's commendable. You're in awe of, of your Savior going into heaven. But yet there must be something about just simply staring or gawking a bit too long at something, perhaps even to the point of being, you know, it's where it becomes sort of unfruitful or, or unproductive. And it's hard to say exactly when that is, right? Like when does that moment tip from, you know, one point to the other when, but you know, here's the thing, like, you know, even in like just normal conventional interaction, uh, we know that, you know, it's one thing to look at something and to admire it. And then it's another thing just to be staring like a weirdo, right? Which is why some people don't like cats or small children, you know, that whole staring thing that they do. And in, and in worship, we're certainly conscious that at some point, something which is good in the abstract can in actual practice become also sort of excessive or counterproductive. If it just drags on for too long, and if anyone doesn't think that you can drag something out for too long, I can go ahead and preach for another hour or two than I originally intended. But anyway, we, so we also understand that, that feelings, even perfectly natural ones, can be uh, you know, sort of tempting to indulge in beyond what is, what is proper. For example, you know, when, when a loved one dies, even as Christ you know, mourned the loss of, of his friend Lazarus, uh, at some point, duty requires one to move on, right? At some point, you've got to move on to continuing to live your lives 
as you must. And indeed, helping people overcome being paralyzed by some past grief or trauma is one of the great works of a successful therapist. And sometimes to do so, the therapist must gently you know, urge the client to stop being mesmerized by the past and, and to move on. And the Lord, too, uh, you know, he lets us do what is, what is innocent, what is natural, whether it's being overcome with grief or, in this case, seeing him lift off and vanish into space, into the heavens, uh, to look on in sheer wonder. But he doesn't want us to get too carried away, lest we become paralyzed or fall into some other, uh, you know, unfruitfulness because of it. And so he sends to these disciples this pair of messengers, these angels who appear to be, you know, they're men in white, you know, they're not the terrifying hitman angels with a sword, you know, these are, these are just the messenger ones who, you know, they, they dress them like very friendly, like they say, men of Galilee, and they ask these disciples, what, why do you stand here looking at the sky? And when they ask this, there, there's this uh, sort of implication of what, what good will you accomplish by staring into the sky? Or, you know, what's the point? Like, how, or how is this going to help the cause? Or, you know, Christ has gone up to heaven now. He told you that he was going up to his Father, and he promised he was going to send you the Holy Spirit to give you the power to do his work here on earth. So what is there to be gained at this point by continuing to stare off into space? Now, love can be a powerful motivator, but it can sometimes lead people to do fruitless and one unwise things as anyone who has ever been in love with the wrong person or observed others in love knows. Uh, I've known many a friend, and I'm sure all of you do too, who wasted untold hours, days, months, even years of their lives merely pining for someone uh, instead of actually, you know, doing something like, maybe you should ask that girl out instead of like, you know, worrying about it. Uh, what was the point of pining instead of acting? You know, if you're if a single young man, like, you know, the, the, your life is short, man. Like, you got to move. <laughs> Don't just pine. Like, do something. Act. Go ask her out on a date, if that's what you want to do. And, and a disciple's time in this world is also too short to waste on fruitless actions like just staring into the sky for too long, wondering where the Savior went when he's already told his disciples, told us where he went and what they need to do to act. And thus the angels asked the disciples there, why do you stand there looking into the sky? Which is really a nice way of saying, stop standing there looking at the sky. You have your orders. Now go forth and fulfill them. And you may be saying at this point, well, I'm not like these disciples. I wouldn't just waste time just staring into heaven. Um, but some Christians basically do that in, in a manner of speaking. They, some Christians are very, you know, they're really into the mysteries of the faith and, and spend a lot of time studying and contemplating theology but unfortunately, sometimes some of these same folks aren't much for actually like, doing the will of God uh, in their lives. And by the way, I'm not saying by any means that studying and contemplation of, of theology or abstract heavenly things, or they're not, I'm not saying that they're not good things. In fact, you need those things too. Okay, you, they, they're very edifying, and you need them in order to know what God actually wants you to do as well. And in fact, if anything, like, you know, I would say probably the vast majority of us probably need to do more time, uh, spend more time studying and contemplating the high things of God, and especially in trying to understand all the wonderful layers of meaning and, and how he has worked his will throughout history and what we can learn you know, through the study of his word. Those are all good things. 
And, and I'm not saying here that doing good works is the end all and be all of diligent Christian life either, of course. You know, in fact, there are a lot of times when we really do need to be more like, like Mary. You know, just spending time enjoying you know, the, the presence of our Savior uh, in, in our lives and, and less like Martha who feels like she's got to be you know, busy in the kitchen doing stuff in order to feed everybody. But, but Acts, the book of Acts, and certainly, I mean, and you know, keep in mind, the book, it's called the book of Acts, not the book of, I don't know, staring off into space, uh, you know, contemplating the mysteries of the divine. You know, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, and it's, and it's reminding us, just even by its very title, that there are also times when, if we catch ourselves just sort of staring off into space, so to speak, uh, we need to return from our gaze, we need to return our gaze down to, here, to the here and now, here in our world, in our lives, uh, on earth, in order to do the actual work that God has called us to do, just as Christ himself will return from heaven to earth someday in order to complete the work of the Father who has planned all of this from all eternity. <clears throat> but when should we do the contemplation and study thing, and when should we act and work? How do we find that, that balance, that sort of golden mean? Note that Christ's last words to his disciples before he you know, literally takes off is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so our primary mission is to declare the good news of our Lord to, to the entire world. And therefore I encourage you, while I encourage you to try to understand all the mysteries of God as revealed by him in his word, uh, I also encourage you to live your life in such a way to be a credible witness for truth, for righteousness, and then to actually communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. And why is this such an important mission? Well, because the angels, you know, they told us in Acts, the same Jesus who has been taking you, taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Note first that they say, this same Jesus. In other words, you know, the same Jesus that was, you know, the Word made flesh, born to the Virgin Mary, you know, a little baby, and then he grew up, and he died for our sins, uh, and then he was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Uh, that, that's the same Jesus as the one that's going to be coming back in the future. And when he returns, uh, it's going to be kind of a, a different, different circumstance, a different condition. He's no longer going to be like this little helpless baby. He's no longer going to be like you know the suffering, persecuted uh, servant meek and despised, treated like this criminal, but he's going to be coming back uh, leading an army from heaven. And so this, this same Jesus who embraced small children as they came to join him, the same Jesus who loved his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this same Jesus who cried out when he suffered on the cross, this same Jesus in whose name you pray every day, he's coming back. Now, unbelievers often mock Christians saying, okay, well, you know, Jesus, he might have been this, this wise teacher and he's a cool dude and all that, but he's gone. He's gone. And he's been gone for a long time. So long, like, pff, maybe he's not coming back, right? No. This same Jesus is coming back. He's going to be, I mean, and, and here's the thing, like, he, he's only go being gone for so long, I mean, it's a mercy, right? He's patient. He wants to give the doubting world an opportunity to repent. Because when he comes back, this is how it's going to be. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. 
whose writer is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down his enemies. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In other words, when Jesus comes back, he's coming back with armies of angels to destroy and conquer evil once and for all. It will be glorious, but it probably won't be pretty. Much more Hieronymus Bosch and much less Thomas Kincaid. And this is why, as we head into the Advent season, just as we commemorate Christ's first Advent, we must also prepare for Christ's second Advent, not just simply by gazing heavenwards, wondering when he's going to return, obsessively looking for signs for his coming by, I don't know, contemporary current events. Uh, but, you know, this is why when, when right before Christ ascended to heaven, I mean, because remember, like when Christ, the first time, like before he went up, he, when they, he was asked, well, when are you going to be back? He told his disciples, it's not for you to know, like when. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. And so instead of looking, you know, whatever, for the signs of current events, when he's going to come back, when he's going to come back, instead, we have to prepare for Christ's return by looking here to the lost souls on, in our world today, in this world around us, not knowing when anyone's time is up, but, but knowing that when he returns, he's going to be unstoppable, you know, crushing all rebels who try to oppose him, and then he will come to judge the living and the dead. Yes, all who happen to be living when he comes again will be judged, and all who have ever lived and died will be resurrected, and they too will be judged. And the first standard against which all will be judged is whether or not they not only believe in the Lord Jesus, but whether or not they have real living faith in him. Those who have living faith by the grace of God will be saved, and those who will not will be cast into eternal darkness. And for those who are saved, the Bible tells us that there will be another accounting. 1 Corinthians 3 says that the builder who builds upon the foundation of Christ will have this building tested by fire. If the building survives the fire well, then the builder will be rewarded. But if the building is basically destroyed, then the builder is going to suffer loss. Yes, the builder will still be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So I hope you understand why it is so important for you to prepare for Christ's coming by spreading the gospel to wherever your influence may reach here on earth. You have been saved by faith. And perhaps God will use your evangelism to help bring faith to others so that they too may be saved by faith when Christ returns to judge the world. You know, at, at your job, you know, maybe your boss isn't around for a while and you know, then when your boss finally comes back to you know, wherever you're sitting, uh, surprising you, do you want to see him just staring out the window or playing with your phone or whatever, or do you want to see him hard at work? And just so when Christ returns, should he happen to return when you're still drawing breath? Uh, I hope he doesn't just see you or me just idle, 
but working diligently, building something worthy and precious upon his foundation that will survive any fire. And then when he, is, and then when he comes, again, he is coming, he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. May his grace enable us to do so. Let us pray. You are our eternal salvation, the unfailing light of the world, light everlasting. You are truly our redemption, grieving that the human race was perishing through the tempter's powers. Without leaving the heights, you came to the depths in your loving kindness, readily taking our humanity by your gracious will. You saved all earthly creatures long since lost, restoring joy to the world. Redeem our souls and bodies, O Christ, and so possess us as your shining dwellings. By your first coming, make us righteous. At your second coming, set us free, so that when the world is filled with light and you judge all things, may we be clad in spotless robes and follow in your steps, O King, into the heavenly hall. Amen.